Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast, brought to you by Source by Sound Agriculture. I'm Michaela Faulkner, Managing Editor at Cover Crop Strategies. In today's episode of the podcast, Jim Denise of Park Hill, Ontario, Dean Jackson of Columbia Crossroads, Pennsylvania, and Lucinda Stunkel of Palmer, Kansas, join us for a panel discussion about the benefits of incorporating cover crops into your operation, wherever you farm. My name is Lucinda Stunkel, and we have a diversified 1,000-acre farm in north-central Kansas. We grow wheat, rye, oats, triticale, milo, soybeans, brome, alfalfa, and native prairie hay. We raise beef cow-calf, and we finish grass-fed beef on the the prairie grass and with cover crops. My name is Dean Jackson, uh, along with my wife Rebecca and our family. We own and operate Mount Glen Farm located in northeastern Pennsylvania. We have a dairy operation uh, with a lot of diversity. We're in the purebred registered Holstein business. Uh, we market uh, breeding age bulls and cows and semen sales throughout the United States. And our crop rotations are we grow corn for silage and grain, some soybeans, um, grow mostly grass with an alfalfa base, a grass base with alfalfa in our better fields uh, for all of our forages. And we market extra hay, different types of hay uh, for horse people or beef cattle or dairy cattle uh, throughout Northeast uh, Pennsylvania and New York State as well. So that's, uh, we have about 900 acres and uh, about half of that is tillable in these rolling hills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Yeah, my name is Jim Denise. Uh, I farm in uh, Ontario, Canada, uh, not far from London, uh, kind of along Lake Huron. I guess I started farming in grade 11 when I started buying wieners and um, after high school went off to ag college and then started farming full-time shortly after that, 98. So it's been 25 years or more I've been at this. We run average size crop, cash crop farm for our area as well as fair to finish swine. We also do some seed sales for uh, a Canadian seed company called Mazex. Uh, we do corn and soybeans um, out of that company and uh, we also do some custom farm service work as well. How long have each of you been using covers and what was that motivation to start the transition to using cover crops in your operations? I was very fortunate here. I had a neighbor that had no-tilled, experimented with no-till, you know, going back probably 30 years now. And so I got to watch him and watch that evolve without doing it myself and see his successes and failures when we finally made that transition to no-till and it just made sense that we needed something on the on the ground and in this area they were starting out with some oats uh, just to get something quickly established uh, a single crop species either oats or rye but it didn't take me long to realize that diversity is key just like everything and we started putting in blends of different uh, species and I, I really enjoyed watching that work uh, I like the oats because they would grow quickly in the fall and then die out over the winter. So you had something laying on the ground for the earthworms to, to uh, feed on early spring. And then, of course, your wheat or rye would take off and grow, and you could terminate that later. As far as cover crops, uh, we've always used them as long as I can remember. Even my dad, uh, we've always used uh, just basic red clover interseeding into the, the winter wheat. Um, and he did that, that for years. And I guess... Uh, one of our goals has always been to improve the soil. That's kind of one of our core values of the farm. 
one of the issues we ran into with it was always a struggle to get a consistent stand with the red clover into the wheat. So that's when we started looking at other options. Uh, we started messing around with drilling in some oats to start. I guess that's a pretty common way for people to start into this thing. Uh, and we progressed to include multi-species. Um, we added, added and subtracted different things as the years went on. Kind of tweaked our mix that way. Uh, some of the challenges we face have been learning to when to desiccate the crops, um, what species to incorporate into our system. The seeding rates were also a big lesson in, in bringing this along. Um, we found out that pretty quickly that less seed is probably better for you than more. So. Well, it's kind of interesting because we've been no-tilling for 18 years and we started using cover crops 16 years ago. My husband planted spring oats into the wheat stubble one summer in the back half of the field so that no one could see it from the road. And it did so well. It was chest high on me when um, it was um, done. And we were low on hay that year, so we put a hot wire around it and we put the cattle in there. And they did so well that we grazed them until the end of February on that grass. And um, when the cattle came off the oat grass, they looked like they were ready to earn a prize at the county fair. So um, we decided to keep using it. And then we eventually started adding other things into it. The first thing we added back into in with it was um, radishes. And then we started adding other things like a winter peas and that sort of thing. But we, again, started with oats because they grow quickly and they're very versatile and the cattle love them. You can graze them, but you can also hay it. And um, they love that hay in the wintertime, which was a surprise to us. It looks like straw, but it has a lot of um, nutrition in it. And um, when we mix it with winter peas, then the peas give it some um, nutrition as well. So they really like those bales. Great. So... Lucinda, um, Jim had talked a little bit earlier about what challenges his operation has had with cover crops. What are some of the challenges that your operation has had with covers? Well, we really didn't um, start out with um, trying to improve the soil. We started out just needing some grazing. Um, and so it's kind of interesting that um, the soil health came along with it. Um, as in terms of um, trouble, we have had um, droughts um, three out of the last 10 years, uh, severe droughts, and um, the cover crop isn't as tall as normal. But amazingly enough, it has it's packed with um, more nu nutrition. So you have just as much nutrition, even though it's not tall. So what appeared to be a problem ended up not actually being, being a problem for us. Yeah, there's one glaring problem that we have here in our area, Northeast Pennsylvania, we're uh, a short growing season. And when we get, take that corn silage off, uh, we don't have much time. Uh, I have shortened up my length of day varieties of corn. Um, and when we have a no-till drill right behind the chopper, I have somebody that is, we don't want to waste a day because uh, we just don't have much time to get anything established. I remember three out of the last four years, it's been soaking wet here in the fall, and it is right now. Um, very tough to get things established whereby they do much good. But if, and that's what we do, we shorten up our length of day varieties of corn uh, silage, and uh, we have that drill right in there, right behind it. And then we'll let that come. And then when we get manure on it, we get manure on it. And so I have cover crops that are up. 
and we'll go right out in there with the tanker and the tractors and cover up and it'll grow right through that if you waited till after you put manure on it's too way too late and uh that has worked but i remember one year we had a two acre field is all and it was the only one we could get on it was so wet we chopped it and i had dad go down there that next morning just a two acre field and put a cover crop on it and then it started raining and it never stopped hardly and that was the only two acres we got covered that whole fall with cover crops it was those two acres that's the challenges we have here in this area with a heavy clay soil and, and wet ground. We never take a tractor off of our drill. It's always ready to go, right behind the combine. All right, so what changes have each of you seen to your soil health that you can directly attribute to using cover crops? Jim, why don't you start us off for this question? Well, we've definitely seen lots of positive effects on the soil. Um, the uh, inclusion that we've always we've always been no-till farm. The only thing we conventional till in the past was our corn crop. We've always done three crop rotation, but um, so the no-till I've always said has helped us hold on to what we had. Adding the cover crops in the no-till system with the strip till now, we've moved on from hold on to we have to building what we have with the soil. Uh, we essentially eliminated the erosion because uh, we we're still seeing some erosion on some of our hillier ground uh, with no-till. Definitely better aggregation of the soil, uh, better water infiltration. I've really noticed more resilient soils in more extreme weather, like extreme dry or extreme wet periods. The, the crop seems to hold in there better uh, with the better water holding capacity and water infiltration that you get along with improved the soil health. Equipment, we've noticed equipment really carries better in the fall too, especially wet falls like we've had the last five years here. We're not dragging mud around. Uh, our, our tires are clean where if we did have a conventional farm that we tiled or something we had to work up, it's just mud one end to the other where you're growing covers and no-till. It's your wheels are still clean. You're not rutting everything up. Um, it's really night and day difference that way. That, yeah, you attribute that to the soil structure and the, the extra organic matter between the rows, the mat, mat of cover and the, and the, the roots. Also knows tons more worms, uh, less issues with compaction. Um, we're predominantly uh, clay loam soils. So uh, compaction is always front of mind with us, and, and this seems to be helping us with that for sure. We naturally have a tan clay soil, and now ours is dark brown, which is just really exciting. We have much better aggregation. Um, it looks like um, brown cottage cheese instead of um, a chalky tan, which is also very nice. We have a much higher organic matter. We've been able to double and triple our organic matter. Now that sounds great, but we started out pretty low, so it's easy to double or triple it. And now the water infiltration is less than uh, 10 minutes to infiltrate an inch. So in a, an hour, I can infiltrate six inches now. And that really helps because we can keep the limited rainfall that we do get in our soil and it doesn't cause erosion, it doesn't run down um, downstream. So that really helps our situation in being able to grow crops. Um, during the three, drought, three years of drought that we had, um, I still had crops and the neighbors didn't. We received the Grassland Management Award because we were the only ones in the county that actually had grass. Um, so it really helps to do the no-till and the cover crops. I will just echo everything uh, 
the two before me have said uh, it's it's uh, to go out in the evening during the summer and during a rain event and see the earthworms, uh, worm castings, the cottage cheese, the organic matter, the darkening of the soil, all that. Uh, that is just so exciting to watch that develop over the, over the years. Um, it's almost like um, you're just letting Mother Nature do the work for you. And all you are is a manager and not be out there when you shouldn't be. And with us, we have the dairy manure uh, to, feed, to feed those worms. And it is incredible the what the crops we can grow with very little fertilizer versus, you know, decades ago. It's just, uh, and like I said, I was very fortunate to have a neighbor that I could learn from and uh, dare to do it, dare to get started. Um, that was very helpful. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Source by Sound Agriculture. Source by Sound Agriculture unlocks more of the nitrogen and phosphorus already in your fields so you can rely less on expensive fertilizer. This foliar applied chemistry has a low use rate and you can mix it right into your tank. Check out Source, it's like caffeine for microbes. Now let's get back to our conversation. Each of you live in different parts of the country. So what cover crop species are most effective for each of you? And, um, you know, I know Jim and Dean, you guys live a little farther north. So you've got that short growing season to work with. Um, Lucinda, you live in a dry land area. Um, so that might throw a, a different uh, wrench in things. So um, talk a little bit about the, the different cover crop species. And Lucinda, we'll go ahead and start with you. Um, we do um, several fields of sequential cover crops for grazing, and they're dedicated to one cover crop after another. It's um, primarily for grazing, but it also improves the soil. And uh, the basic premise is to take half and leave half. We do want the livestock to trample, to defecate, and urinate, because that creates compost. Nothing is wasted. We start out March 1 with a spring cover crop for grazing. It's basically oats, winter peas, and a hybrid kale. We graze that April 15th, and then we let it rest and regrow to graze again. Uh, we can get um, sometimes three grazings out of it, with the third one sometimes being an oat hay. And this is what it looks like. Um, in the summer, um, we graze the native prairie grass, and every time that the uh, spring cover crop is rested, we um, do a sequence of cover crops um, in the same field, um, one right after the other, primarily for grazing, but to improve the soil. The premise is to take half and leave half because we want the livestock to trample, defecate, and urinate because this creates compost that improves the soil health. Nothing is wasted. First, we start March 1st with a spring cover crop for grazing. Uh, we also include winter peas and hybrid kale with this. We plant it um, March 1st and then we graze it April 15th. We let that rest and regrow so that we can uh, graze it th up to three times depending upon how much rain we get. That third grazing might actually be a hay. Um, then that oat pea hay is very nutritious for the cattle. They love it in the winter time. 
We graze native uh, during the times when we're resting the oat pea cover crop. There's also a summer cover crop for grazing. This includes this includes legumes like cowpeas, mung beans, and sun hemp. It includes grasses like sorghum sedan, and we like the dwarf brown midrib, pearl millet, Japanese millet. We also add um, some forbs like the spineless okra and the sunflower and buckwheat. This is planted on May 15th, uh, somewhere between May 15th and June 15th, but do test it for nitrites before you graze it. It's grazed July 15th to September 15th. And then we have a fall cover crop, and we sometimes stockpile this for late winter grazing. It's um, triticale and oats, basically for the grasses, uh, twice as much triticale as oats. If it's late, we may skip the oats and just put 90 pounds of triticale in. The legumes are hairy vetch, forage pea, crimson clover, and... Um, we sometimes add an annual ryegrass to that. The brassicas are radishes, turnips, and collards. And we have found that no more than two pounds of brassicas. Otherwise, the cattle get um, too washy or, or uh, have too intensive diarrhea. You can plant this any time between July 1st and September 1st. Um, and it just depends when we harvest the other crops. Uh, and then we graze it any time between October 15th to March 1st. If they need more protein, we either give them a protein tub or roll out some alfalfa bales. Then repeat this as many years as you need to to heal the soil, reducing the fertilizer each time. And we have grown it without any fertilizer. The more vegetation that's left as residue, the shorter the regrowth period. So don't try to graze all of it out. We also interseed covers into our row crops, and this has helped tremendously. Uh, here's some soybeans with companions, and those companions are buckwheat, mustard, and radish. Just one pound each per acre. It doesn't take much to add this um, to the planter or the drill. Milo with companions, buckwheat, flax, mustard, an annual lespedeza, mung beans, radishes, either mini pumpkins or squash, and wheat. Add some common vetch, which is an annual, lentils and radishes. And then in the middle of the winter when it's going to snow, or towards spring when it's going to snow, frost seed about 10 pounds of red clover and let it, the, the melting snow take that seed into the soil. Our goal with our, our cover crops is uh, three things really. It's to build the soil, help cycle nutrients from our hog manure, and to stop erosion. Um, so keep that in mind. Uh, we use a base usually of uh, oats, CRI, daikon, radish, fava beans, kale and turnip are the main ones. Sometimes throw in some crimp, crimp, crimson clover, uh, rapeseed, Celia. Um, we've tried sunflower and flax. We find that a lot of the broad leaves and like stuff like Celia and flax, as well as a lot of the, the legumes, when we're doing manure on it, they they get choked out. They can't really compete with a lot of the grasses and they don't really amount to much. So we've kind of gone away from some of those those um, types of seeds. When we're seeding, we seed it with a, 
a 40 foot New Holland uh, 2080 disc drill. Um, so we, we seed our cover crops after our wheat harvest. We usually harvest around mid-July um, and we usually wait till August um, to seed our cover crop uh, for a couple of reasons. We want the volunteer wheat that's gonna come up from the combine to come up so we can desiccate it. We can kill it off before we plant our cover crop or we have nothing but problems with it when we go to strip till. And uh, the other part is the oats will get too wiry by the time we go to strip till and they're just a nightmare to deal with. So we've learned that we have to wait a little longer. Um, we can't go in right after, it just causes too many problems. So the field does sit bare there for a couple of weeks, but it gives a good opportunity for some weed seeds to come that we can kill off. As far as seeding rate goes, we started, when we started into this, we started going about 50 pounds an acre and we've dropped that back drastically. We found, especially with the newer, we can get it with, this year I'm down to 30, 32 pounds. Um, so we're talking like $12, $13 an acre in our cover crop seed um, costs. Um, and I may even drop back further next year. We've got a lot of growth there this year, even with the, we didn't get seed till mid-August. And at 30 pounds, we've still got pretty lush growth. Um, we've also tried aerial broadcasting, cereal rye into soybeans in September at, at Senescence, as well as the standing corn at the same time. Um, we've had, I guess, variable success with that. Uh, it's good catches to zero catch um, in the soybeans and the corn is basically, you couldn't find any rye in it. So uh, we've experimented with that. I don't think we'll do it again. Uh, we were, we're one third rotation of corn, soybeans and wheat. So really the only thing that doesn't have something green growing all year round is just the corn stove over after harvest which gets planted into soybeans in the spring anyways. So otherwise there's winter wheat or cover crop growing there throughout the winter and spring and fall. So um, that's kind of our system. Being a dairy operation, uh, most of our ground is uh, in hay, uh, grass mixtures, um, and uh, it goes for baleage, haylage, and dry hay. And then uh, all of our corn ground is the only thing that we uh, put cover crops on. We don't do any grazing or we have some established pastures for bred heifers. Uh, we use a mixture of, uh, like I said, we try to have our corn silage harvest in motion by September 1st. And right behind that, we're coming in with uh, sometimes uh, a few pounds of oats and either wheat or rye. And we'll also throw in turnips and radishes. Uh, that's my son's recommendation because he's an avid hunter. <laughs> he wants anything planted that'll draw deer in and uh then we let them go and in the spring we will terminate them before we plant uh, our corn or put our new seedings down for that next uh next spring now we have experimented with planting green and that's the next step for us is to go right in and let that just let that go and go right in and i've done it with rye about four feet high and I thought it was going to be a nightmare, but I was surprised at how well that came. I uh, did not terminate it till after I planted the corn. And uh, that's something that we, if we could get a normal spring that wasn't real wet, uh, we would probably lean, lean towards doing more and more of that green planting. But that's the extent of our cover crops. Uh, we want, like right now out there, everything, uh, we still have corn to, to shell. Uh, but everything we took off for silage, I have, uh, we were fortunate by September 15th, I think we had it all in the, the cover crops and we haven't even had a kill of frost yet, which is very unusual for Northeast Pennsylvania here. And uh, so we have a nice establishment uh, this year. So yeah, but I, 
to have something growing and living on that soil at all times. Something that people don't understand, I, I think, is, is I heard it said this way one time, rain droplets, and they hit hard. They displace soil. Every drop of rain will displace bare ground. It'll dis- displace soil and make it move. And so uh, if you have a, a cover crop uh, or something living on top of that soil, so that is catching those raindrops and letting them just fall gradually onto that soil. That's a huge difference. But when I had it explained to me like that, it, it made it made sense. It kind of sunk in a little bit that uh, raindrops displace soil and cover crops catch those raindrops. Jim, you had mentioned that you all use cover crops to mitigate soil erosion. Um, what have you seen with using covers to help capture some of those nutrients from the soil? And have you made any adjustments to your fertilization program as a result of implementing cover crops? Um, yeah, well, I guess it, it, for us, it's all kind of, for the nature side, kind of all stuff, um, folks around the manure um, and trying to spread that at an awful time where you're not mudding it on in the spring or in the fall. Um, so that's why I try to stick hogs, which is generally dry. And so that's why we include like the radish and the turnip, which seem to, to work better for cycling some of those nutrients and turn it into an organic form where it's available for the, the corn crop following spring. Um, so that's kind of our strategy with that. Um, yeah, like I said, like it's basically eliminate erosion. Have you seen any changes in um, weed pressure or insects or disease pressure as a result of implementing covers? Yeah, definitely um, with the cereal rye in the, in the mix, we've definitely um, got, I think, a little better control of things like Canada fleabane or I guess maristail, it's also known as, where we have shifted the spectrum a little bit. We're seeing more um, foxtail and um, perennials like perennial sow thistle and Canada thistle. Um, have become an issue, but we've also decreased on other weed species. Um, and as far as disease goes, I haven't really noticed a difference. And same with um, insect pressure. Um, I thought one of my concerns going in with this uh, planting of the green cover was uh, we'd be seeing a lot of slug pressure, but uh, it hasn't been an issue at all. If, if anything, it's actually even better than what we've seen when we were conventional. So, For everything you need to know about no-till farming, you need to make plans now to attend the 31st annual National No-Tillage Conference being held at the Hyatt Regency St. Louis Arch Hotel. It's January the 10th through the 13th. All the experts, equipment, application discussions, workshops, and networking you need to get your no-till operation off to a blazing start in 2023. Learn the secrets of some of the highest yielding farmers on the planet. Legendary no-tillers like Russell Hedrick, David Hula, Randy Dowdy, Ray Archuleta, and many more. Visit notillconference.com and use the promo code RADIO for a $100 registration discount. Or you can call them at 866-839-8455 to sign up for the National No-Tillage Conference, January the 10th through the 13th, being held right here in St. Louis. Once again, that website, notillconference.com. We um, had a lot of weed pressure at first when we started going to cover crops. Um, And we have um, glyphosate-resistant pigweed out here in a big way. Um, But the rye over the winter really helps to mitigate that because it's 
uh, a nitrogen hog, so it soaks up the nitrogen so that it's not available to the pigweed. So that when the pigweed does sprout, it stays about a, a couple inches tall and um, doesn't really um, get much taller than that. The rye also shades it out to keep it from getting very tall um, at the beginning also. And um, then when we um, roll it, it has an allopathic effect with the pigweed as well. And then when we plant green and then um, uh, roll it down later or just um, knock it down with the drill, um, then that really helps that problem without having to spray because if you can't use glyphosate, if you're going to spray, you need to use a, a mix of chemicals and they get more and more hazardous. An interesting thing, since we haven't been using insecticide for quite a few years now, um, the neighbors had an armyworm infestation and it just marched across the field and took out everything in its path. We scouted and found one armyworm in an acre <laughs> and it, we just um, haven't sprayed so our natural insect predators are still there and they take care of the problem before it becomes a big problem. Once you start spraying insecticide, you're, you're killing the good guys as well as the bad guys and so your problem just compounds and becomes worse and worse. So getting away from using insecticide has really helped us a lot. And then in our Milo, a problem with that has been the sugar cane aphid. It leaves a honey goo over the top of the heads and you can't combine it because the goo gets stuck in the inside of your combine and you need very hot water to get that out of there. Plus, you can't really harvest the, the Milo then. You would have to graze it. And we found that the ladybugs and the lace wings, which are um, prevalent in our fields because of not using the, the pesticides, and they're the good guys, they eat the aphids. And then if any of the aphids escape being eaten, the native bees, the ground bees, um, come and mine the honey off of the top of the Milo heads, and it's nice and clean to combine. So that's really helped as well. We haven't used fungicides in years either. The, when the soil becomes healthier, it just really benefits you all the way around, so you have um, less inputs. We um, also use the dollars that we save from the inputs um, to buy cover crop seed and um, also to uh, improve our grazing infrastructure. And we've fenced around all of our crop fields now and we're adding watering systems um, to them or to the adjacent pasture um, so that we can graze at a moment's notice whenever it's ready to be grazed and then we can take them out when um, it's time to plant something else. Um, we also use the Haney test to determine what fertilizer our soil really needs. And um, that is a water-based um, test instead of a chemical-based test. So it, it um, gives you a more accurate picture of what your um, soil is actually needing. Um, and then we only add back to that um, what is needed. And we're um, exploring and using other things. For example, if we need more nitrogen, we're putting in legumes. And as long as you can get those legumes to bloom, then you're starting to sequester nit nitrogen in the root nodules. So that helps a lot too. Um, we've been weaning the, um, the 
soil off of the, the chemical fertilizer. And instead of going cold turkey, we're trying to slowly wean it off by replacing that with legumes. And as the soils become healthier, it just actually needs less fertilizer. So we're uh, trying to get our soil to not be addicted anymore. Yeah, um, I agree that rye is, is a tremendous uh, weed suppressant. Uh, we've seen that rye uh, cover crop or in a mix uh, does a tremendous job. Uh, you know, when you're transitioning to no-till, you're going to see all kinds of things come in for a, a rotation or two. Nothing serious, but uh, uh, rye in a mix has helped us a lot on that. Insects, uh, we have a, no, no more than a three-year rotation in corn before we go back into grass uh, sods, uh, so we never see any insect problems. I mean, when we were had alfalfa more in our in our rotations, we would have leafhopper troubles that we'd have to spray for once in a while. And again, when you did that, you killed all the good stuff as well. But uh, we're grass-based mostly now, so that eliminated all that uh, that kind of spray. So yeah, I'm I'm right with uh, everyone else, and that is the fact that we want to mimic nature. Uh, we want our inputs as low as possible. And soil samples has taught me that. There's a lot of times when we think we need something, and, and in reality, we really don't. But we just got to trust uh, the soil sample, whether it's uh, no matter what kind it is. And do the nitrate test, we've done that, you know, both soil and tissue. And I'm just amazed that, you know, it's, it's technically not enough nitrogen out there on the field, but it says it is. And I've just noticed more and more of that. I don't have a lot of technical data to share with you, but uh, I'm just amazed at the crops we can grow with the amount of inputs. Uh, you know, we have, of course, the cow manure is a big deal, no-till and uh, cover crops. That's that's the secret right there. And uh, that that's worked great for us. All right, well, um, our time is coming to a close. So uh, before we wrap up here, I'd just like to um, give each of you one last chance to share um, your parting thoughts and comments uh, related to cover crops? I would say try cover crops on 10% of your acres to see how they do. If you're afraid to, to get started, just try 10% uh, of your land and try cover crops for at least three years on that field before you make the decision about them and use the dollars that you save from your uh, using fewer inputs to purchase your cover crop seed. And then uh, cover crop mixes always outperform the single species. So go with mixes. Uh, and the more items in there, the better. The more species in there, the better. And mix all of the cover crop seed in the drill box, set it on medium, and go. Um, we also calibrate the drill to make sure we're getting the right number per acre. but you don't have to worry about the seed not going through the drill because it will. All different sizes will go through. I guess just anyone looking to start into the cover crop thing, I guess best place to start is start with a plan. Um, and that's from planning through to termination. Um, what species of seeds, um, what rate to seed at, uh, the goals, what you want to accomplish with the cover crop, um, how and when to terminate. Uh, best usually to start small and get comfortable with uh, a system before you jump 
fully into it uh, and build from there. Talk to as many people experience um, as you can before making a, making a plan. Um, and when it comes to seeding rate, for sure, we've, we found out less is more. Um, you don't need to be pounding 50, 100 pounds an acre seed and you're just wasting money at that point and probably gonna cause yourself more headaches than help. Um, that, again, having a plan for termination is critical um, and timing and stuff, you can get into trouble there. Uh, and don't be afraid to experiment with different things, different species, different timing, all that kind of stuff. Um, like for our system, we found out don't plant too early um, mm. on the issues. But I think there's definitely, not a lot of downside and a lot of upside to to moving to this thing and, and that's what we found we um when we moved into it our yields were climbing and, and they've continued climbing every year since we've done this we haven't seen a lag at all um while having less input costs uh so our net net income per acre is up substantially um without sacrificing any yield so yeah i give it a try i think it, it works great for us anyway so I remember when I first started looking into no-till and cover crops, I'd go to some meetings and at those meetings were people that were kind of established that have already done it. And when you're around those people, those people, they're not going to talk about their successes as much as they talk about the problems. And I remember walking out of one of those meetings one time thinking, I'm never going to do that. You know, they talk might talk about slugs and weed pressure and transition and, 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 being a young guy that was just trying to get started, I thought, wow, I don't want nothing to do with this. And uh, which was, was all false. You have to overcome that. So stewardship is another big thing. I mean, folks, we're, we're on this earth for a short period of time and we're here to take care of the land. Uh, and we can talk about different seas. We can talk about dollars. Uh, we can, and all that's important, but you know, it's just the right thing to do to have our ground covered. Uh, it's the right thing to do in every aspect of it. And so that's very important. Uh, again, having good mentors in your area, talk to those in your area who have done it already and get, get a plan with what they're doing and that can help you get started. And I agree, you gotta, you gotta dive in. You can't just try it one year or two and that's it. Uh, it takes time. Uh, do not let the cost of seed um, deter you. It's a long, it's a, you know, it's a theory and a philosophy and it, it takes time. And you think about all the money we spend on farms, a person shouldn't let a few dollars on a cover crop seed deter them. And most importantly, just do it. Put that seed in, like she said, and just get in that tractor and, and do it and have fun. Uh, your conservation districts, uh, at least in our area, are a great resource. Uh, as they talk with other conservation districts and other farmers, uh, to help you get pointed in the right direction and maybe rent a drill the first time or two instead of buying one to get your, get your feet wet. Try new things and again, like I said, have fun. Thanks to Jim Denise, Dean Jackson, and Lucinda Stunkel for today's conversation. The full transcript and a video for this episode are available at CoverCropStrategies.com slash podcasts. Many thanks to Source by Sound Agriculture and the National No-Tillage Conference for helping to make this Cover Crop Strategies podcast series possible. From all of us here at Cover Crop Strategies, I'm Michaela Bachner. Thanks for listening.